Hello everyone, it's July 18th, 2023. So we have a prognosis for Vulcan's new Centaur upper stage. It had some issues on the test stand, but Tori Bruno says they have a solution to these problems. And that BE-4 that exploded last month might not be that big of a setback. Let's get into the details and find out why and lift off. And we've the Tower Welcome to episode 418 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Uh, and now Ben's out this week. <laughs> Back and forth, it seems. Uh, he's He's got still doing something with family. I don't know. He's, he's got a whole chaotic thing going on at mm. his house. So yeah. I'm not even sure what, but... <laughs> yeah, hopefully he's, he's enjoying a well-deserved... Uh, Mini vacation, I think you'd put it. Yeah. And so. But we're here. And uh, I was just, I just wanted to mention at the, at the top of the show, since we're not going to talk about it anywhere else, uh, Chandrayaan 3 successfully launched. Mm. Uh, so hurry for that. It won't reach lunar orbit until I think mid, uh, mid-August. And then the landing is scheduled for I think the 23rd or 24th, uh, somewhere around there. But uh, so far, so good. And I remember last week when I mentioned... At least I think it was last week when I mentioned the launch, I said that Chandrayaan 2 and 3 were pretty much the same, except that they just don't have the lunar orbiter. Mm-hmm. But also the landers themselves are different, and they're different in a couple of ways. One key way is that uh, apparently this one has uh, four engines on it as opposed to just one big one. Um, I'm not sure why that particular change, uh, maybe for like redundancy and like the landing profile. It just probably makes it easier um, if you can just, you know, like throttle down two engines as opposed to trying to throttle down one big one. Mm. You can just, you know, cut some off. Plus, Chandrayaan 3 has a larger fuel tank. Yeah, I think I had read, yeah, because right, obviously, uh, you know, if, if people don't remember, Chandrayaan 2 uh, hit the lunar surface a little too hard, yeah. <laughs> left a little crater there. And I think, yeah, I think they redesigned the propulsion system to try to make it so that they'll have a higher success rate of... Uh, of landing on this next mission. And that's also why, right, it doesn't have the orbiter this time because Chandrayaan 2's orbiter made it. And so it's like, okay, well, let's <laughs> let's really yeah, just yeah, focus yeah. on sticking the landing this time. Yeah, I, th- I think I failed to mention that. The whole reason why they don't have the orbiter is because that part of the mission was successful. That's mm. still there. So they don't need another one of those. Um, <laughs> they're just having problems with the lander. So it's tough. Hopefully this time they will stick that landing. And I think this makes them the fourth or will this will make them the fourth uh, nation to mm-hmm. uh, put something down on the lunar surface. We've had a tough, uh, tough stretch. I mean, China has been able to land something, but in the last four or five years, I mm-hmm. think that's it. <laughs> and, and it's not that other people haven't been trying, but yeah. So I guess, I guess if if if, if India uh, touches down, then yeah, they'll be the fourth nation, but it'll still leave open who will be the first uh, private slash commercial uh, entity to land, right? Because if if Oh yeah, if, true. If Hakuto R had, it would have gotten not just the fourth nation would be Japan, but also the first, you know, private uh, or commercial space uh, spacecraft to land on the surface, soft land on the surface. Was the Israeli one a commercial? I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, Space IL, I believe, was the name of the company. Yeah, Space IL, and I'm forgetting the name of the lander. Bereshit. Um, yeah. Bereshit. There you go. I wonder is, is Bereshit two uh, still? In the works? Looks like it's planned for 2025. Yeah. Yeah. That's still ways out. Vulcan Centaur delays. So we have some more information there. The launch is being pushed back to the fourth quarter of this year. So at least not next year. Uh, so far, mm. that's you know the assumption. Did we? I mean, I know that we talked about 
you know, the big mishap that they had during that uh, last test. But mm. um, I don't know how much more in detail we went because I don't know how much we knew at the time, how much was disclosed. But this was due to um, a hydrogen leak. Um, and it's kind of interesting. So this was due to a hydrogen leak that had occurred in the upper stage tank, specifically around a door built into the forward dome. This was due to the fact that apparently there was some structural problems there that they had not accounted for. And uh, so hydrogen pulled up um, like over the course of about four and a half minutes. And then there was some kind of an ignition source. And then, you know, mm. it all just kind of, like, you know, like blew up. Mm. So uh, that's what happened. And it's kind of interesting that this is something that they were not able to test for during the modeling of this tank. That, that That's how complicated the geometry is. But those are the words that I think the Tori Bruno used. It, it's a very complicated geometry. And of course, I'm thinking, well, it's, you know, a dome and it's a door on a dome. How complicated could that be? But apparently very. Yeah, right. He describes them as they're like curved triangles. Like it's still a round dome, but the dome is made up of these curved triangles that all kind of come together at the top, which is where the door is. And so mm -hmm. I guess that mean that makes it a bunch of pieces welded together and one of those welds wasn't uh, as good as they thought it would be. And it was tough, like you said, to catch <laughs> because of the geometry. But then they were able to do modeling post-test, uh, post-catastrophe, mm. and uh, figure this out. They showed what are called stress risers or a stress riser. I've never heard that term, but basically that there's too much stress on a particular part of that dome structure. Um, and they had used coarser modeling prior to that. And I guess that's how it was overlooked. They just weren't doing the right kind of modeling for that particular section. And so they missed it. And uh, he'd said that the loads went way up and that was, you know, like unexpected. And in addition to that, the welds were not as strong as they had previously thought. So mm. that's another surprise for them. And again, this is something that I imagine they did test and they actually did test this and they found that the welds were good, but apparently not because they're using a new form of welding. Um, well, actually it's not new, but it's new for them. Mm. They're using laser welding, which is something that actually SpaceX uses and has used used for a long time. So yeah, laser welding. But uh, this is their first go of it. And, and apparently tests had shown that the welds would be strong enough. But now, once again, like after the fact, they've found that that's not the case. And, and it might be worth mentioning too, right? right? Uh, these, you know, ULA is famous for their remarkably thin tanks. Yeah, the tanks were said to be very thin. But is that something that they're known for? I actually didn't know that. Yeah, Atlas V uses balloon tanks. Or, oh, sorry, the, the Centaur is a balloon tank. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe infamous and well-known to me. <laughs> yeah, okay, nobody yeah. else, everyone else is just like, yeah, well, Centaur's a balloon tank. But I mean, I didn't know that the Centaur was a balloon tank either, but that makes way more sense because the first stage, I was thinking, because they put that on the pad, it seems like I would have heard of, or that there would have been some kind of a mishap at some point and the whole thing would have crumbled. I mean, then, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to happen, mm. but um, I've just never heard it brought up. You know, that that's a big concern. Although, like you said, the Centaur is, and I was not aware of that either. So, good catch. No, sure. I, I'm thinking what I must have, I think what made it a pattern for me was that I conflated the earlier atlases with the fact that ULA, of course, has the Atlas V. And so, my brain just tied those two together, even though Atlas V doesn't use balloon tanks for the first stage. I was still mm. thinking, oh, it's a atlas and i don't know that's my guess okay oh sorry and and i don't know if it's it's really that helpful but uh that word stress riser i looked i looked it up and it looks like it's just um that's just another way of saying like a stress concentration so basically just an area where there's stress significantly greater yeah. than the surrounding region so i mean it makes it sound like it's a probably a more complicated thing than saying you know that was a weld where 
there was more stress than anywhere else around mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Learned a new term. Um, yeah. But um, one other thing I wanted to point out, uh, or one thing that Tori Bruno wanted to point out, um, <laughs> you know, just to instill more confidence in uh, this launch vehicle, is that that Centaur had been previously tested 14 times. And more specifically, it, it had been pressurized 14 times. So that's a lot of pressure and depressurization cycles. Uh, and as we all know, you know, that can cause a lot of wear and tear. Um, and it can really stress those welds. So it's kind of not surprising that this happened. At least I don't think so, because that actually is quite a bit. I mean, I don't know what the expectation was. Um, you know, that it should be able to withstand 20 or something, but 14 times is kind of a lot, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, 14 is more than it would ever do. Uh, but yeah, I was wondering, like, I, I, I swear I one of these articles talked about how there's a certain number, though, that they target. Oh, sure. Yeah. I suppose it's because they thought that the welds were a bit stronger than they are. So yeah, um, they're going to have to readjust uh, that expectation. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so what changes have to be made in uh, exactly... How are they going to do that? So they're going to need to add 135 kilograms of mass, specifically in the form of reinforcing those seams uh, with more steel. And what's interesting is that Troy Bruno said that they're going to later reduce that by half. And I'm kind of wondering why they know ahead of time that they're going to reduce it by half. Um, and why not just do that at the outset? I don't know if you can shed any light on that, but that kind of confused me. Good question. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know much at all about it, but I, I got the sense that he was describing the initial patch as kind of like a quick and dirty, non-optimized reinforcing. And so maybe it's just an estimate that okay, well, after we look at it more carefully and we do a more, you know, precise job, then we'll be able to maybe cut the, mm-hmm. you know, cut it by half because half is a, uh, you know, that's a. It's a kind of big, uh, discreet sort of change mm-hmm. to make. You know, maybe they only cut it by, you know, six to 60% or to 40%, you know, I don't know. But like half is right. captures that, yeah, we'll, we'll slice it in half once we do a more careful treatment. That's how I read it as someone who's never welded anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably that uh, the steel that, that they're using to perform the weld, it's probably just kind of like something off the shelf and they're just going to slap it on there. And they can probably do the same thing with a more well-crafted piece of steel that would weigh less, you know, like maybe they can, you know, like etch in an isogrid into that or something, who knows? And they can, you know, take out a lot of that mass that they actually know that they won't need. It's just that they don't have that part. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. Tori Bruno does talk about how, you know, when they switch back to that gas tungsten arc welding, how that's a wider weld than the laser one is done. And so maybe you can narrow it down over time uh, eventually if you i don't know figure out how to optimize it but i don't know yep so specifically they're going to add an extra layer of steel just around the door at the top of the dome um, which makes sense because that's exactly where that crack had formed Um, but then they're also going to add 120 centimeter wide strips uh, to all the rest of the seam so you know the actual seam that holds that whole tank together apparently they're going to reinforce that so it's going to be uh, 60 centimeters on either side it said so pretty big seam there so if you put 135 kilograms on the second stage that's how much of a payload penalty you're going to take because it's the second stage. Luckily, this is uh, not going to affect any upcoming missions that they have scheduled because uh, these aren't particularly heavy payloads. So they do have that room to play with. So that's good news. And uh, as far as what they're doing with these uh, particular Centaurs, the ones that they have built, the Certification 1 Centaur, the one that's supposed to launch next, is going to be swapped out with the 
third mission one uh, because that one's still, you know, back wherever they're currently working on. I'm actually not sure. So their headquarters is in Colorado. So ULA has their headquarters in Colorado. Their launch ops at, you know, Cape Canaveral. And then they have manufacturing, assembly, and integration ops in Decatur, Alabama, and Harlington, Texas. So okay. that might be where that physical stage is sitting. In, in Bama or Texas. One of these places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're going to make the modifications to the Centaur for the third mission, and then they're going to ship that over to the Cape to do the certification one launch or test and launch. Uh, so yeah, they're doing some swapping around. And then the BE-4 engine failure for the certification two that you know failed, uh, that was on... One of June them 30th. exploded okay, yeah, yeah. during an acceptance test last month. I saw some discussion on Discord about how that's really not good this late in the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it was a denial test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> acceptance or denial um, or a rejection test. Yeah, it was a rejection. So uh, the BE-4 engine that was undergoing acceptance testing for the Certification 2 flight, that exploded on the test stand uh, late last month. Uh, we didn't know much until more recently. Um, and again, this is more news from Toy Bruno. This is basically all stuff that he has said. So um, I do appreciate that. He's always very forthcoming once he can be. It seems, you know, like at the earliest convenience, he always gets all that stuff out there. So apparently this isn't necessarily an inherent flaw with the engine. It's just that uh, the automated thresholds on the test stand for things like pressure and temperature, those are still being tuned. And so the engine was not able to shut down in time before it exploded. So they basically had the thresholds set too high and they need to be lowered a little bit and that way this will not happen again. Mm. Uh, that's his explanation, which seems reasonable because he had also pointed out that uh, that same engine had undergone, I forget how many, like 26,000 seconds of testing prior. Mm. So, and they had no problems. So this is, you know, seems to be, it seems to be the case that uh, they just didn't have their thresholds set correctly. Uh, something got a little bit too high temperature pressure, who knows what. Well, I'm not sure, but I think the problem was a burn through. Um, and that's what triggered, you know, the explosion. So yeah, at least it's not their, you know, ULA, does, their problems that they're having. And I guess this is blues as well. But like, at least these aren't, you know, here's a fresh piece of hardware that we're looking at for the first time and it totally fails. Um, these are things, I guess, that have been put through uh, a lot before they fail in terms of just, you know, the tank, right? The tank had been cycled 14 times and evidently this engine had been run through or, or had accumulated a lot of hot firing time as well. So just looking for a, po a positive, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a question, I guess. Um, so, okay, so this engine was burning reached too high a temperature and so they were like all right well we you know we should have put a lower threshold to not let it reach this high temperature and so by the time they shut it off there was already the burn through and everything um isn't the engine reaching that high temperature a problem in and of itself and not just a matter of changing how you tested it but like the fact that it reached that high temperature isn't that demonstrating an issue with the engine itself i guess is my question it seems that his explanation from what i can tell is that this particular engine uh, did have some kind of a flaw, but it's not a design flaw. It's just, you know, a... Right. You can say it's more of a quality control issue, I suppose. I see. So he's not worried because there's they'll be able to get another B for that will pass acceptance. He's confident they'll get another one that'll pass all the acceptance firings and, uh, mm. and, yeah. and be able to slap that on there since, after all, you got to wait for the tank to get fixed in the first place. So. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, a couple of hiccups. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
All right, so uh, let's do three short and sweets, even though there's only two of us. Uh, Dennis, what's the first? <laughs> first up, China begins constructing V-Leo constellation. According to the China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, or CASIC, China has begun the construction of a very low Earth orbit, or VLEO, constellation of communications and remote sensing satellites. Reportedly comprising 300 spacecraft, the first satellite is slated for launch in December 2023, with China hoping to have a nine satellite cluster by 2024 to verify the constellation's capabilities. Targeting 2030 for completion of the full constellation, the VLEO satellites will provide high resolution and greater bandwidth due to their low orbit, but must overcome the challenges of operating in such a highly dynamic environment. Next up, more China news. Uh, Landspace wins the race. Uh, hey, that rhymes. The Jiuquei 2 rocket built by Landspace became the first methane-fueled rocket to reach orbit last week. This is Jiuquei 2's second attempt at orbit. Its first attempt failed as a result of a damaged vernier thruster. Uh, so far, there is no word on whether this most recent flight carried a payload. Speculation about financial difficulties for Landspace has surfaced, though it is hoped that this success will allow the company to take on medium-lift payloads that would have previously flown on earlier generation Long March rockets. And finally, Janus cancelled. The Janus mission, a pair of small sets that were originally planned to rideshare with the Psyche spacecraft, has now been canceled by NASA. After the Psyche mission was delayed from its planned summer of 2022 launch, the original targets for Janus could no longer be reached. The spacecraft pair was designed to visit different pairs of binary asteroids as part of NASA's Small Innovative Missions for Planetary Exploration, or SIMPLEX, program. While alternative targets were investigated, the mission is now effectively closed out though the spacecraft have been completed at a total cost of less than $49 million. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, corrections, and video recommendations. <laughs> That's what we have today that we just cram into this junk drawer of a segment. So <laughs> what is the video recommendation? Yeah, so, so this is coming from Ben. Um, he, uh, I, I don't know uh, how he encountered this video, but he wanted uh, to share it with us and with all of you. Uh, it's a pretty cool tour of um, Astra, specifically talking about the manufacturing process of their Rocket 4, right? Their next big one, which, uh, to be blunt, is going to be the, you know, I guess the make or break of uh, the company and its viability. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, I, I only jumped around and saw uh, different bits of it here and there. Uh, seeing the comparison between it and Rocket 3 is pretty, pretty staggering. But uh, what's, it, it looks like, uh, one of these, you know, it's like hour-long deep dives where somebody gets a really cool in-depth tour of a company the same way that, you know, Stoke Space and Spin Launch had been recently profiled. And so, uh, yeah, Oliver, the space nerd in the Discord, uh, uh, saying that this was a good one. And so, you know, it's it's vouched for by multiple people. So, uh, yeah, if you have time, it's on uh, NASA Space Flight's YouTube channel. But uh, we'll have also the link in the show notes, of course. Very cool. All right. So I guess we move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have four winners. We have Colin, uh, Asukar, Uncle Willie, and Chris, a.k.a. Steigarfield. So the clue was radio parasol. And this was a good clue. It, uh, I think it got just the right amount of winners. And so what is this radio parasol? Yeah, thanks. That you speak of. Yeah, good job, everybody, with the guessing. Um, so this uh, radio parasol took place, <laughs> I guess, uh, on the 18th of July, 2011, and it was the launch of the Spectre R radio telescope. And so, yeah, a uh, interesting Russian space telescope. But uh, it might sound familiar to you. Um, 
even if you hadn't heard of Spectre R before, because there is a Spectre RG telescope on orbit right now. There's actually a whole program of these Spectre missions that the uh, Soviet Union and then Russia, um, uh, through Roscosmos, had ultimately planned. And so uh, if you go back to the uh, 80s, you know, NASA was coming up with the uh, the Great Observatories program. Um, it might have been around uh, a little earlier than the 80s. I'm not entirely sure. The development cycle for these missions is so huge. But uh, the Great Observatories program was NASA's, uh, you know, specifically building the and deploying the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Uh, not in that order. Uh, and so uh, the Soviet Union slash Russia was thinking about, okay, well, we're going to you know launch our own fleet of orbital telescopes. And they similarly would be looking at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum as well. Uh, this really came uh, not just as an answer to NASA's great observatories, but it, it kind of took more form uh, when they were uh, developing the Phobos spacecraft. That was, you know, the I guess part of mm -hmm. Phobos Grunt, who, uh, which uh, unfortunately failed uh, to actually make it to the Red Planet uh, successfully, but it had a platform called the the 1F, you know, spacecraft bus, and they were thinking, okay, we can use that for space telescopes, and so that'll be cool. And so uh, in 1983, Russia or the Soviet Union launches the uh, the Astron UV telescope. They were like, okay, this is a good, you know, space-based observatory. We're able to pull this off. Uh, it's working well, et cetera. And so we're going to come up with uh, this radio one, this uh, ultraviolet one, this x-ray one, and this infrared one. Uh, we'll have all the – this will be our fleet of, you know, Spectre uh, telescopes where Spectre is basically spectrum is the idea. And so the idea is to look at all the different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's why it has that name as opposed to just, you know, the Bond villains um, – you know, organizations. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, for a name. And so, uh, you know, they're developing these uh, in, in, in tandem with each other. And um, the idea for coming up with a radio uh, telescope, that would be Spectre-R, ultimately the one that this event is about. Just like the uh, UV telescope was called Astron, uh, Spectre-R would be part of what's called the Radio Astron or Radio Astronomy Program which was to have a space-based radio telescope that you can do interferometry with. So Spectre-R would be the space telescope, and then you could have ground telescopes that would do interferometry with it, and together you would have the equivalent of a very, very large telescope. And so that equivalent larger telescope, the network, is called the Radio Astron Program slash Network. And uh, Russia had uh, experience with these larger uh, with large uh, radio dishes uh, on orbit because they had already launched the KRT-10, which I think is Cosmic Radio Telescope uh, 10 for 10 meters. And so that was a 10-meter diameter telescope that was launched in 1979 and deployed on Salyut 6 and was a TWISIF that I had done at some point in the last year, I think. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, pretty cool. Um, you can see this deployable 10-meter telescope uh, sitting on a Russian space station, which is pretty great. Or a Soviet mm -hmm. space station, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Spectre R, the, you know, the technology was there, and they were going to have this one be a dedicated, uh, you know, not attached to a space station in Leo, but able to go and do its own uh, thing. So, uh, pretty cool uh, to have happening there. And also, uh, I thought was interesting was that the the lead on Spectre R was a, uh, a scientist by the name of Nikolai Kardashev. 
And that name might sound familiar to you. Yeah. It is, in fact, the same <laughs> Kardashev as the, you know, Kardashev scale where you would rank extraterrestrial civilizations based on how much energy they consume, whether they're just, you know, consuming like we are uh, resources on Earth versus taking all of the resources in coming from your host star versus all the res- all the light and energy in your entire galaxy and turning that into useful, you know, work, I guess. I think you can use it to, well, it's a scale that I guess is just meant to rank any civilization, including ours. It's just that we're a Kardashev zero, I believe. Or one. They're not zero indexed. So, <laughs> but yeah. Oh, 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 they're not. I thought that there was a zero. I, I thought it started zero. Okay. Well, then Kardashev one. Okay. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, we're, either way, we're, we're at the lowest rung of the yeah, know, yeah. Uh, interstellar civilizations. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool that uh, this person, you know, it's kind of like some people get famous for what I'll say is, you know, somewhat out there, you know, kind of bleeding edge ideas and thoughts about, you know, alien civilizations like Francis Drake, known for the Drake equation. But then they also were, you know, practical astronomers who, you know, (laughs) uh, took data and studied, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal astrophysical phenomena. Uh, as their day jobs, I guess. It's, pre- it's pretty fun when you know people yeah. wear multiple hats like that. So in 1987, uh, the idea for the Spectre fleet was going to be uh, you have the uh, uh, Spectre RG or Ronkin uh, Gamma, which is basically the X-ray telescope. Uh, that would fly in 93. Uh, Spectre R, the radio one, would fly in 95. The ultraviolet one would fly in 97. And the infrared one in 99. And uh, something happened in uh, the Soviet Union between 1987 and the, you know, 93 through 99, uh, and that was the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? And so that timeline was not even remotely close to being met. In fact, of those four, only two of them flew, and both of them were launched in the 2010s. So we're talking decades of delay. But of course, when an entire nation collapses, uh, uh, that you know, tends to happen. And so, yeah. Yeah, that'll put a damper on your space program. That'll put a damper on your (laughs) space program. Yeah, well put. So with, you know, this funding also collapsing, uh, basically the now kind of nascent Russian program, space program was like, okay, well, uh, what we have, you know, funding together, we'll kind of cobble it into uh, Mars 96, uh, which will be our big win, uh, you know, having our big Russian you know, Martian mission, which of course, uh, that one, uh, never made it past, uh, low earth orbit. Uh, the fourth stage failed and it splashed down the Pacific. And so that was a really, really bad situation there. Yeah. So instead all these specter missions had, you know, little bits of funding kind of trickling towards them and not enough to really get them to launch on any meaningful timescales, but to just still be, you know, in this kind of perpetual development, um, where again, the, the ultraviolet one is still in development to this day, nominally, right? They still plan to launch it sometime, but you know, it's been a while since 1997 and they still don't really have a good timeline, uh, figured out because the money isn't there. And as far as the infrared one goes, it seemed to fall off the map. I have no idea what the latest status for that one is. <laughs> So, okay, now we're in the 90s. The funding situation is worse. Uh, At this point, they realized that 
uh, going back to Spectre R specifically, um, the 1F platform, the spacecraft bus uh, that they were going to use, it didn't have the pointing accuracy needed, right? That might be good for sending a mission to Mars that's going to try to land, uh, you know, something on the surface and have an orbiter, etc. But for the high precision pointing that you want for a space-based telescope, um, it just wasn't going to do. It didn't have – it only had the attitude control system. So it didn't have uh, reaction wheels to really you know, be able to fine-tune its pointing accuracy. Uh, it also didn't have movable solar panels. So the spacecraft was constrained. If it wanted to look at a particular you know, galaxy in the sky, will it be able to you know, pick up uh, sufficient power through its solar panels when it's aimed there if the solar panels were fixed and couldn't rotate? Uh, and so that was some issues. So they switched to this uh, uh, newer platform uh, called Navigator. And so there were some cool bits about this Navigator one. Uh, uh, one that it's it's unpressurized. And I always love this as a bit of like interesting history between the so about the Soviet and Russian program is that while the U.S. Uh, basically started building space-hardened equipment for their spacecraft kind of from the get-go, um, the Soviet and then Russian approach was more of a let's build vessels that our electronics and hardware will reside in, and those can be uh, pressurized and kept at, you know, uh, good temperatures for running electronics typically. That's an interesting little fact that I didn't know. Yeah. I, did, I did not know that. That's a interesting, like, fundamental... Uh, you know, philosophy. Yeah, difference. yeah, mm. yeah. So I love that. Now, 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 it's it's kind of been it's no longer the case. So, but that, like, yeah, like those Vega missions, for example. I think the Veneras as well. Those tended to have you know spacecraft that were in pressurized compartments or yeah, equipment that was in pressurized compartments, not the spacecraft. <laughs> I wonder why they would need to be. Pre I, 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 well, I don't know. I mean, de depending on what the components are, why would it need to be pressurized? You know, like I, I assume that they'd fill it with you know like nitrogen or some kind of inert gas, and maybe that helps with heat exchange or something i don't know um, yeah, i was gonna say you can't control the temperature really unless you can control you know unless you have like a pressure as well or, or unless you keep it under pressure if that makes sense right yeah yeah and if it's in low earth orbit right it can be oxidized i guess from the atomic oxygen you know oh, yeah. down there whereas if it's in a pressure vessel that shouldn't be an issue i guess you know it's it's, mm. it's, it's just think about all the ways that space is harsh <laughs> And then having it in a pressure vessel lets you sidetrack exposing your hardware to all the ways that space is rough. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so they, you know, figure they're going to move to this uh, navigator platform for the spacecraft bus uh, for the electronics and the propulsion system and all that good stuff that isn't the instruments in the telescope. Uh, and I'll talk more about the details, but I thought uh, this was an interesting tie uh, in um, that uh, some of these, uh, I guess, Russia's other uh, space Telescope also was on this platform, as well as the Electro-L series of uh, satellites. And if that sounds familiar, that's because these have been flying since 2011. The first one was launched. These go to geostationary orbit. They're meteorological satellites. And again, the whole, uh, if it sounds familiar, is because Electro-L number four was launched just months ago, uh, earlier this year in February. We saw one of these uh, navigator platform still in use uh, to this day, evidently. So pretty cool. A little bit of uh, tying things to uh, the modern era, because I think in this timeline, I'm still in the 90s. So, okay, so there's little funding available. Uh, all the Spectre uh, observatories, uh, their development is just crawling forward. And there were launch dates, of course, you know, set in the mid-2000s and then, sorry, 
set in the mid 2000s and they just kept slipping. Uh, but finally, by 2009, so again, this thing was originally thought to launch uh, in 1995. So we get to 2009 and now the spacecraft was being built and tested, instruments were being installed. Um, but there were still some hiccups that delayed it even further. Uh, in 2010, there was a fire. Uh, somewhere uh, that damaged the main antenna. So I guess wherever they were, you know, doing testing and work on it. And then uh, the Electro L's that I just mentioned, uh, the first one launched in January of 2011. And uh, it showed uh, a gyroscope uh, failure on it because part of the whole navigator platform was having gyroscopes on board so you can do finer uh, pointing. And because of that failure, they wanted to make sure that all the gyroscopes would work for Spectre R. So that also delayed it. And then giving you uh, an idea, a little taste of what the state of you know launch vehicles were for Russia at this point. Spectre R was also competing with Intelsat 18 for the only Zenit rocket that was available. And so Zenits were these Ukrainian rockets that, uh, you know, were being bought by uh, Russia in the, you know, the 90s and 2000s and 2010s. And yeah, and, and so there was this competition for it. But ultimately, Spectre R won out, which was kind of surprising. Most people at the time were thinking that Intelsat's going to give Roscosmos a big chunk of change, you know, <laughs> to pay for them to launch it. And so they would get priority. But uh, there was this uh, shortage of Zenitsa uh, at the time, a little bit of a crunch there. And so, yeah. But ultimately, it would fly. Uh, and so to talk about the spacecraft itself, this Navigator bus, uh, it's an octagon that's kind of hollowed out and, you know, you have all your stuff in there. You've got your uh, reaction wheels, uh, attitude control thrusters. You know, I, I didn't look up what the propellants were, but it has the kind of standard avionics you would expect to see on your uh, spacecraft bus. Um, as well as, uh, I was saying, the, the issues with that earlier 1F uh, uh, spacecraft bus was that, yeah, it didn't have the good pointing, but also didn't have movable or steerable solar panels, whereas the Navigator did. And so it has these two kind of standard looking, uh, long rectangular, uh, accordion folding, steerable solar panels. Uh, but then the real uh, star of the show sitting on top of the spacecraft bus is a 10 meter parabolic antenna made out of 27 uh, carbon plastic petals. And they fold in this swirl so that you can uh, fit them into your payload fairing because no matter what you were launching in with a you know 10 meter diameter, that is way too big. Um, but this kind of folding capability, right? The, the uh, uh, KRT-10 uh, radio telescope, again, that went to Salyut 6 back in 79, uh, that one also had to be folded and uh, kind of deployed on orbit. And so that's ultimately where the clue comes from, because when uh, Spectre-R is folded up, it very, very much looks like a, a parasail. Um, or a uh, an umbrella, <laughs> if you want it to be. Yeah. I said parasail. Parasail is a little different from a parasol. Parasol, yeah. Parasol is what I meant to say, yeah. <laughs> to me, it looks like a cocktail umbrella. It does, yeah. And remember, we try, yeah, we, we also tried to shoehorn in a, uh, a like a Mai Tai or Pina Colada <laughs> type clue. Um, yeah. I couldn't think of anything clever. So that's ultimately where it came from. And uh, it's pretty cool. They had these uh, 27 uh, electrical heating lines running along each of these pedals. And um, yeah, I guess the only other thing is that at the, uh, uh, you know, the focus of the, uh, uh, the main uh, dish uh, is where you would put your, uh, the focal module, which is where the feed is that basically the light 
the radio light gets focused to there and then gets amplified and, you know, mixed and turned into uh, useful signals. And so, uh, yeah, so the, the this telescope, it worked in the radio waves. It had four frequency bands. And there were a couple secondary uh, instruments on board. There was a Russian Czech one that would measure the solar wind. Um, there was a German-built micrometeoroid counter. And there was also a magnetometer on a boom, as they often are. So finally, in 2011, uh, July 18th, uh, it launches on a Zenit 3M uh, with a frigate SB upper stage. The SB stands for, David, you want to take a crack at reading this? <laughs> I don't know where the stress is on this word, but uh, is I don't know. Let's, uh, that was my first attempt. Now I'm going to listen to Google Translate. That's That's... Better than I could do. For listeners, I can read Cyrillic, but I don't speak Russian necessarily because <laughs> I can just read the alphabet. That's easy enough. Yeah, my my my, my best was Sabrasavaya Maya Baki. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, right, so attaching that to the end of frigate, that means uh, that translates to drop tanks. And so the idea was that this was a type of uh, frigate upper stage that had a tank that would be dropped off. And so while the frigate looks like a ring of spherical, you know, tanks that are all kind of like uh, kind of overlapping into each other, it's a pretty cool look. Um, I always talk about, you know, how I like the look of a frigate. But in addition to that, there's then a torus placed around the base of the spacecraft, the the base of the uh, the, the frigate that can get dropped off. And so you can do multiple stages of firing. And the idea of the frigate is that it's, you know, it's a, it's a, an optional uh, space tug, right? And so for interplanetary spacecraft, your Zenit is not going to be taking, you know, your payload on a direct uh, orbit to Mars. So you need this frigate SB to get you uh, to where you want to go um, because the Zenit second stage was able to put this, uh, uh, the Spectre R in a 180 by 450 kilometer orbit. Okay, so you're still very uh, low Earth orbit. Now, at that point, the frigate SB, it does a 488-second burn, and then it drops this, uh, this torus, this donut tank on the bottom, uh, and then does an 894-second burn to get to Spectre R's final orbit. And this is a, an, an HEO if there ever was one, right? This is a, a high-Earth orbit or a highly eccentric orbit, and it has a perigee of 10,600 kilometers and an apogee of 350,000 kilometers. And so that, right, 350,000 kilometers, that is almost reaching the moon's perigee. And because of that, you got to take into account uh, multi-body dynamics. And so this was not a fixed uh, orbit. The orbital parameters were changing over time. Now they had their orbital dynamicists check to make sure that, you know, it would be stable over the period of years uh, for when the mission would run, but it was changing. And so these are not, you know, these numbers would basically change probably each uh, period, which was over a week, uh, eight to nine days, depending on the particular parameters. Um, and, and all the while, it also was inclined, given that it was, you know, launched from uh, Baikonur, uh, you know, uh, 42 and a half degrees inclination. Um, uh, on launch, it had a higher inclination, but it ultimately settled down to that lower one. And so, yeah, so it's on orbit, uh, really whipping out towards the moon and coming back uh, to Earth and still not getting too close to Earth. And then on uh, day four, they were ready to uh, unfold the parasol. 
And so the main dish uh, uh, unfolding was going to be an hours long operation. And so they were, they did it except the petals uh, when fully uh, opened uh, would not latch onto each other. And so, uh, yeah, uh, thinking about Lucy hmm. <laughs> with its solar panels not latching on the one. Yeah, latching has always been an issue for any kind of, you know, uh, folded uh, deployment of something. This goes back to, you know, well, 2011. Eh, it's only 12 years ago. It's not super ancient history. But I figure as long as we've been unfolding things on orbit, we've been having issues with them latching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, they they, they tried what – any reasonable person would be, you know, retract them a little bit and then unfold them again. See if that could like, you know, get you a little more momentum and jostle them loose or whatever. But that didn't seem to work. And so for whatever reason, they just left it unlatched for a day. And we're like, okay, this might still be all right. But then uh, the next day they tried it. So this is on, you know, flight day five, I guess. And it worked. Everything latched. And so, yeah, we've got our main dish deployed. And that's the most important part of this telescope. Uh, unfortunately, those electric heating lines did not activate, and so there were huge temperature swings uh, that the mirror would experience, um, unfortunately, uh, almost 100 degrees uh, in terms of the, the range of temperatures. But, so that degraded its performance a little bit, but it wasn't a terribly big deal. Um, they were still able to get good data out of it, as I'll talk about. And uh, the magnetometer that was on board failed entirely. So I guess the short of it is that it worked. Um, this thing had been described as prolific. Uh, it had taken tons of data. It was a great resource. It was the only, you know, 10 meter radio telescope on orbit and it was on orbit for a while. And, uh, yeah, it, it just was a, a wonderful contribution to, uh, radio astronomy and astronomy in general. And as a result, it was something that, you know, Roscosmos and, you know, the Russian space uh, sector could be very proud of, uh, as well as the astronomical sector out there. And so, yeah, um, it was taking great data. It was very heavily uh, oversubscribed. Everybody wanted, you know, to get time on using the telescope to look at their objects for their science cases. But by mid-2016, uh, it's still doing good science, but its perigee had fallen to about 7,000 kilometers. And so it did have to do an orbit correction there. That was a big one. But it had this good navigator spacecraft uh, propulsion system. And so that worked out fine. And while the lifetime was estimated to be about five years uh, based on uh, radiation hits being the limiting factor, uh, it ended up operating until uh, January 11th, 2019. And so a good uh, almost, almost eight years, more like seven and a half years at that point, unfortunately, it had stopped responding to the ground, uh, even though it was still transmitting scientific data. But uh, at that point, they tried to figure out if there was a way that they could regain control. Um, they thought maybe it was just like a temporary bug that they had encountered on one of these Electro-Ls that shared the same uh, navigator bus, but it was something that they couldn't recover from. And um, a lot of this, uh, there's a lot of information on uh, uh, Anatoly Zak's uh, RussianSpaceWeb.com uh, about the Spectra-R mission that is uh, uh, not behind a paywall, although what he has behind a paywall goes into even greater detail, which is really good. But um, uh, he does have a quote in there. Uh, somebody uh, was talking about this situation and referred to it as, uh, this patient is alive, but it is not willing to talk to anybody. 
So that's kind of the the, <laughs> the the thing there where you've got it's it could still take data and everything works except for the communication with the ground, which is pretty important if you want to tell it to target certain objects and expose for certain periods of time, etc. But it left a great legacy. Uh, it was the only Russian space telescope at the time, and it was a big win when wins were pretty rare for the Russian program, especially after you know Mars ninety six, and you know they've had. They've been struggling basically since then. And so, yeah, eight years of good data. And one thing, I had mentioned interferometry, but I didn't get into the details about it, right? So, uh, once again, I put on my little astronomy hat and talk to you about what interferometry is. Uh, I think the best way to describe it, and this is how I had it first described to me, is all right, imagine you have a, a telescope mirror, okay? If you uh, – it's got a certain size. If you were to put a little black paint on the mirror to you know block out light from hitting there – or reflecting off of there, that doesn't translate to a you know a smudge if it was an optical telescope and you're looking at it through an eyepiece. That doesn't suddenly create like a little smudge in the field of view. That just reduces the amount of light that's collected. But all that rest of that light hitting all the other parts of the mirror is still going to be brought to a focus just like normal. It just reduced your collecting area. So, okay, so you paint a little black smudge that reduced some of the collecting area. What if you paint even more and more and you get to the point where you paint the entire mirror black except for a little patch on one end and on the edge and then another patch on the opposite edge. So now you've got these two little patches of reflecting mirror that are separated by the sea of black paint. Well, for the same reason I said before, they're still going to bring all their light to the same focus, but the collecting area has gone down dramatically, but the angular resolution of the telescope hasn't decreased at all. And the because the angular resolution is a function of the size of the mirror. And so even though you've ruined most of the mirror with this black paint, the effective size of the mirror is still what it was originally because those two patches of still useful mirror are separated by the diameter of the mirror. And so instead of them being parts of a mirror, imagine that those are separate telescopes that you have on you know different parts of the earth. And that's how interferometry effectively works. It doesn't have a big collecting area, but it has the angular resolution as though you had a telescope physically the size of the separation between those two real telescopes that are actually doing the collecting. And so Okay. Yeah. And so that that's that that separation is called the baseline. And so what's the biggest baseline you can get on Earth? Basically the size of the Earth, right? We've got telescopes that are basically scattered on different parts of the Earth. So when they do interferometry, you know, working in unison as though they were one effective Earth sites Earth sized telescope, that's as big as you can get. But what Radio Astron did by using SPECTR-R, right, where again, Radio Astron was the name of the whole network of using radio uh, SPECTR-R along with Earth-based radio telescopes to do interferometry, was to create a telescope that basically had an effective diameter of 350,000 kilometers, which is just gigantic. <laughs> and so you could get to like really, really, really good angular resolution doing this. And so um, it's pretty awesome. So like... It's, it's, it's almost a factor of 30 times bigger than you could do in terms of baseline than you could do on the Earth uh, itself. Mm -hmm. So pretty sweet. And so, yeah. So just uh, again, I can't say enough about it. It's, it's, it's nice to have good news um, when you talk about a space mission. And so it had a very uh, illustrious career and that was great. Um, the rest of the SPECTRE program has not gone so well. The, uh, the ultraviolet and the infrared ones uh, haven't launched. Uh, they also had a uh, one that would be a follow-on to SPECTRE-R called SPECTRE-M, where M is for uh, millimeter. And this would be deployed at L2, uh, sorry, the Earth-Sun L2, so kind of where 
you know, uh, JWST is hanging out right now. Uh, it would have had a 45 meter antenna and a huge sunshade, just a much more complex and expensive spacecraft. Uh, but that is, you know, still in limbo, I suppose. And the only other Spectre mission that launched was Spectre RG. And uh, that one launched the same year that Spectre R went quiet. So in 2019, Spectre RG ran, uh, launched, and it's still on orbit today. And the thing that made it cool is that it was a pair of X-ray telescopes um, and probably some other, uh, you know, instruments on board as well. But like, it was literally two separate telescopes, um, the, the Russian X-ray one and then the German built uh, E-Rosita one. And unfortunately, though, and I, I feel like I bring it up each week, but after the, I guess because, you know, politics affects spaceflight, um, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Germans basically turned off Erosita and are no longer, you know, taking data with what was otherwise an awesome space asset, uh, just because it's attached to this, you know, Russian space telescope. And so even Spectre RG doesn't quite have the same, you know, shine that it used to. And uh, uh, in any event, probably is not going to end up as prolific uh, as Spectre R was. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just cap things off with what I thought was one uh, interesting uh, <laughs> uh, thing that had happened. Uh, so I had mentioned, right, how the frigate SB, it's got the drop tank, this Taurus that gets dropped off, and that's really neat and everything. And after it had, you know, it gets dropped off after it does, you know, the frigate does its first burn. And that put it not in quite the extreme, uh, highly uh, elliptical orbit that it wound up in because it needed the second frigate burn for that. But this Taurus, this donut, of a fuel tank was dropped in a 400 kilometer by 3,600 kilometer orbit. So that's still a, you know, it's a pretty high apogee for sure. And then the damn thing went and exploded in 2020. <laughs> so just a couple oh, of years wow. ago. And so there are now, you know, at least 65 pieces of trackable debris in this highly eccentric orbit that goes down from Leo to, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. 3,600 is kind of in this no man's land between Leo and Mio, pretty much, right? Um, that seems too high for, for to still call Leo. So that was that was uh, talking about how cool the frigate SB is, but that that was, I guess, a less cool aspect of it. But uh, yeah, that part not so great. Yep. <laughs> but that said, can't say enough good things about Spectre R. And uh, yeah, there's still literally papers that I see on uh, on uh, the archive where they put a lot of uh, astronomy. Uh, scientific uh, preprints before they get published. And then even after they're published, they'll still be on archive. And uh, yeah, I still see that there are Spectre R, there's results that use Spectre RG data um, since, you know, I mean, the spacecraft did operate until, you know, th four years ago as of this recording. So in any event, that was this week in spaceflight history. Very cool space-based umbrella. <laughs> yeah, that was a cool event. And I like that I learned, I realized it was just a footnote, but the fact that uh, that, you know, difference in design back in the day, at least how Russians or the Soviet Union used to put everything in pressurized vessels, uh, their equipment, because they didn't want to space harden it. I don't know. I find that interesting. <laughs> that's a cool little tidbit that I learned. Kind of serendipitous, but that's how I like to learn things. <laughs> so, David, next week is the 25th to the 31st of July. Do you have a clue for us? I do. Hopefully, you'll like this clue. Uh, next week in 2014, he was born in Belgium and then again in Italy. Mm. Well, I know I definitely like this clue uh, because it is 
it is clever <laughs> since I know what the event is about. And it's also something that's near and dear to my heart. So, okay. Well, if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or you can shoot us a toot on Mastodon using the hashtag uh, this week SF. Uh, right now, we only check federated toots on botson.space and spacey.space, but you can always mention at orbital podcast at botson.space or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord to join our discord and type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to TomBot, who is our bot that does guesses. All right, so moving along to upcoming spaceflight events, and thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week, and we have four launches this week. And Dennis, what is the first? Well, first up, we got a familiar Falcon 9 Block 5 launch, and this is going to be a Starlink uh, Group 615. Um, uh, It's got a Quite a wide window, I guess. I don't know why the window is quite so large, but whatever. Keep an eye out for this on July 19th between 0229 UTC to 0843 UTC. And uh, this one will be flying out of Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base in California at Slick 4E. Um, and then after that, on the 19th, we have the launch of a Kwai Joe 1A, and that's being launched by X-Pace. So the payload, we don't know. It's undefined. At least that's all it says here. So we don't know what the payload is. But the launch window, again, on the 19th is from 0311 UTC through 0338 UTC. And it's launching from Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center from Launch Area 95A. And I mean, I'd be surprised if you could watch this anywhere, but uh, that is what's launching. (laughs) And then next up, a less familiar, uh, but even more awesome uh, face. Uh, We've got a Falcon 9, or sorry, not Falcon 9. We got a Falcon Heavy um, from SpaceX. And so uh, it is going to be uh, taking the Jupiter 3 payload. And so this is a a uh, geostationary communication satellite built by Maxar. It got a capacity of 500 gigabits per second. And so the idea is that it's going to be providing broadband uh, in the Americas. And uh, this launch, uh, as a instantaneous uh, uh, time on July 24th at 0304 UTC, uh, flying out of the Cape at Launch Complex 39A. All right, and then uh, and then after that, on the 26th, we have the launch of a PSLV CA. So it's just the core, no strap-on boosters. Uh, it's launching DSR, which is a Singaporean synthetic aperture radar Earth observation satellite. And the launch window for that is 2415 UTC through 0415 UTC. So a nice big launch window there, uh, launching from Satish Dawan Space Center. Uh, from the first launch pad, it says. So that's, I guess, the designation for that launch pad. Hmm. First launch pad. And that one you can probably watch. So uh, check that one out. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And so with that, let's uh, do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific or 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Cy Kyle, Mike, Ryan R., Oliver the Space Nerd, Astro, Lucas and Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. And get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, or you can just skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.